This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Today, my guest is Dr. Joseph Volpicelli. He is an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania and founder of the Volpicelli Center in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. His research led to the discovery of naltrexone to treat alcohol addiction, which is now used worldwide to reduce alcohol craving and relapse. And the topic of our conversation today in this episode is whether moderation can be used as an alternative to abstinence for people who are experiencing lots of control over their drinking. So uh, before we get into this, why don't we introduce Dr. Volpicelli. Doctor, how are you doing? Doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an honor to have you here. And it's going to be an interesting topic uh, for sure. Uh, I've told you that I've, I've, I've had people on the program before who've talked about uh, controlling their drinking through uh, the Sinclair method, but that's not what we're here to talk about. I wonder if you can just start by introducing yourself about, uh, you know, how long have you been doing this sort of research? What interested you in this sort of research? Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> I've been involved with uh, addiction treatment for nearly 40 years now. So I've been around for a while and um, I got interested in, in the field when I was a uh, MD PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, I was doing a rotation working with a, a young man who um, returned from Vietnam and he was having a problem with uh, alcohol. And uh, I became fascinated by trying to understand the relationship between trauma, alcohol drinking, and why this person uh, became addicted. And one of the things I learned early on was that while he was in Vietnam, he had a problem with using opiates. But when he came back to the United States, he stopped using opiates, but began drinking alcohol. So I wondered if there was some relationship between opiates, alcohol, and stress. And uh, so I used that to uh, do research. I was also getting a PhD at the time. And uh, so I studied with rats to understand the relationship between how trauma and alcohol drinking and opiates all fit together. Well, that's interesting. What, what, what did you find from that research? So what I found was that, uh, I, as I predicted, that uh, the rats that experienced uncontrollable trauma consumed more alcohol than rats that received either no trauma at all or rats that had control over the, the stress. Uh -huh. But what I found that was really puzzling to me is that most of the alcohol drinking occurred after the stress was over, not during the stress. In the experiment I did, I, I gave rats uh, stress for Monday through Friday, and I gave the rats the weekend off, so I could have the weekend off where I didn't have to come and, right. and run the rats. And, and I found most of the alcohol drinking for the rats occurred on the weekends when I didn't stress them. Interesting. So I wondered how that came to be. And um, at the time I was studying the neurobiology of stress. And of course, most of us are familiar with the fight or flight response that when the organisms experience trauma it releases uh, the stress hormones, ACTH, but it also releases endogenous opiates, endorphins. And when the endorphins wear off, I thought that maybe that's when there's sort of a rebound sort of deficiency in endorphin activity in the brain. And also at the time, I was studying the relationship between alcohol drinking and endorphins, and I found that some people, particularly those at high risk for alcoholism because they have a strong family history, 
After they have about three or four drinks, the brain releases endogenous opiates. And so the alcohol, by releasing endogenous opiates, can help compensate for a relative deficiency in opiate receptor activity that occurs after stress, after trauma. And then I tested that model by blocking the opiate receptors with the naltrexone, and I found that I could block post-stress drinking in rats by giving them naltrexone. So were you uh, one of the first researchers or the first researcher to determine that naltrexone was useful in that way? Yes. So I, after I finished my PhD, I went off and did an internship and, and, and I did a um, residency in psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. And during the residency, I designed the first study to look at naltrexone to treat people who have alcohol use disorder. And so I did the first study at the Philadelphia VA where we gave people either a placebo pill or naltrexone, and we found that those people who received naltrexone had much less chance of relapsing than those people who, who had placebo. Interesting. And that, and, that, and that is widely used now as a treatment for people with alcohol use disorder, isn't it, naltrexone? It's used widely, but it's not used nearly enough. Really? So what I find is that many treatment programs don't use medicines to help people in recovery uh. and, and that's a shame because it can be very, very helpful for many people. It is a shame. There seems to be some sort of a strange um, resistance to medication to assist people with their recovery. And I don't really understand that. Um, I'm involved just and have been involved in a small way with the peer support community in Missouri. And would you know that we had a problem with um, jails in Missouri not allowing inmates to have their medication uh, that the inmates that were dealing with addiction problems, they were refusing to give them their medication to help them with that. And I, I just don't understand the, why there's that resistance. I guess there's in the recovery community at large, there seems to be this idea that you have to be completely free of any kind of chemicals whatsoever, you know, although we do like to drink our coffee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, again, there's a lot of wisdom in the rooms, but sometimes there are biases right. and prejudices that, that persist that are not founded on evidence, not right. founded on research. And um, so one of the things that I did was uh, for, after I uh, finished and received my MD, PhD, I stayed on at Penn and became a tenured faculty and continued to do research in the area. But what I found that was frustrating is that even though we found really exciting, good results in clinical trials, very little of it was being applied clinically. And so in 2008, I left the University of Pennsylvania and found that the Volpicelli Center, which was a model clinical program in which we would use evidence-based treatments, including naltrexone, to treat people who have alcohol and opiate use disorders. And uh, so that's what I've been doing for the past 13 years or so. And what we have found is that the medicines work great, particularly when they're combined with the right kind of psychosocial support to help people stay in treatment and, and take their medication. And and again, I'm very frustrated that there hasn't been more of a widespread use of this. And, and many people haven't even heard of using naltrexone to treat uh, alcohol problems. And and for me, that's my, my mission right now, one of my okay. missions. So I want, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back a little bit to what you discovered about trauma. Um, I don't know a lot about this, but there's been a lot of talk in the recovery community um, as of late about trauma and its relation to addiction. And uh, Gabor Mate is very popular, and I haven't really gone too much into into his work. But 
what you discovered, you know, when you were treating the patient from Vietnam, and by the way, you look way too young to have been dealing with Vietnam veterans. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, um, what you discovered about trauma, I th- I th- it was really interesting to me because you said that the rats were using uh, their substance um, after, not, not when they were being traumatized, but after the trauma. And it's like, from what I know about trauma through Gabor Mate's work is that um, addiction is a response to trauma, childhood trauma, that it's, it's um, our way of dealing with trauma is through our addiction. Do you kind of agree with that? And, and is it more complicated? Is it, is it a mixture of that and some sort of um, chemical stuff going on in our brain? Yeah. So it, it is, it is a little bit more complicated. So when I first started doing my research, you know, I was working in a laboratory to look at the effects of uncontrollable trauma across a variety of diseases. For example, I found that rats that received uncontrollable trauma were more prone to die from cancer. I actually injected rats with cancer cells and the rats that had the uncontrollable stress died at a much higher rate than rats that had no stress. And ironically, the rats who had stress that they could control, they actually had fewer deaths than the rats who had no, no stress at all. So there's sort of an opposite effect that trauma that you can control or stress that you can control can have actually beneficial effects, can help people be more resistant or resilient. But anyway, uncontrollable trauma produces a variety of bad effects. We're prone to get everything from ulcers to depression to anxiety. And so that's what I was studying in the lab. And, and at the time, there was a theory that the reason why people drink is to reduce stress, to reduce anxiety. Right, yeah. And that's a very common assumption. <laughs> right. right. But it's, that doesn't seem to be the fact, and, and here's why. When you think about it, when do most people drink after a stressful day? When does most drinking occur? On the weekends, not when people are stressed. And you can do experiments where you give people a choice of drinking alcohol or water before some anxiety-producing event, and people choose the water. But after the event, if you give people a choice of drinking alcohol or water, people often choose the alcohol. So it's not to reduce the stress, but there is a relationship between stress and drinking, but it's not the one that most of us assume. It's often after the stress. And that's what was so puzzling to me, and that's when I came out with the notion that let's look at what's happening in the brain. And the fight or flight response really should be named the fight, flight, no pain from bite response because when you're exposed to trauma, your body releases endogenous opiates to help kill pain. And your body then adapts to these high levels of endorphins. And when the endorphins start to fall, that creates a need to want to keep those endorphin levels up and alcohol can compensate for that. And so that's what I found with the rats. I found that if I gave rats opiates during opiate withdrawal, they would, want to drink alcohol, just like our uh, veterans. Um, And actually, if you looked at the Sears catalog from the 1918s or whatever, if you wanted to treat alcohol addiction, they would give you some elixir that had opium in it. And if you wanted to treat your morphine addiction, they had some elixir that had alcohol in it. it, So that there's some reciprocal relationship between opiates and alcohol and trauma and stress. And so... So there is an important biochemical connection between those three uh, uh, events. And that the good news is that for alcohol drinking, at least, you can block the rewarding effects of the alcohol by blocking the opiate receptor. Okay. 
So let's talk about this whole idea of can some people moderate their drinking? Um, I, I can, I, I, I'm almost afraid that a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are going to be up in arms that I'm even going to even dare talk about this subject because obviously in the 12 step community, it's all about complete abstinence. The abstinence is what your recovery is, is, is partly about. I mean, abstinence helps you move on with your life, et cetera. So mm-hmm. let's talk about this moderation. What, 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 Go, I'll let you go into it. <laughs> give, okay. give us your thesis. What, who, who should moderate? Why moderate? Yes. Well, so one of the uh, sort of uh, truisms that they talk about at meetings is that um, one needs to hit rock bottom before coming into treatment. Some, someone needs to be motivated. They want to, they need to want to be there. And what I find is that, that attitude sort of lends itself to just addressing the alcohol problem when it's at its later stages. So one of the things that we've learned from research is that problems associated with alcohol drinking occur at a much earlier stage than we typically assume. They certainly do. I, I, I've had someone once tell me it's kind of like a disease of adolescence. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And, and so the um, uh, Food and Drug Administration defines excessive drinking as more than two drinks a a day for men and more than one drink a day for females. That's, and so that's a pretty important. low bar. It seems to me that's <laughs> a very low bar. And a lot of people would meet that bar, but one needs to start to look at your relationship with alcohol. If you're doing that and during the pandemic, many people gave themselves permission to drink a little bit more and then it began to escalate. And so what I ask people to do is to re-examine their relationship with alcohol now. And if they find themselves drinking over more than the dietary guidelines of more than two drinks a day for men, one drink a day for females, then maybe it's time to, to start to look at your drinking again. And so by looking at it at an early stage, I think we can more effectively prevent people from having long-term consequences from from uh, alcohol addiction. And so for those folks, I think it's fair to say that many people on their own can begin to moderate their drinking. So that's that's one population. It's important to look at your relationship and start to do something at an earlier stage before it becomes a significant problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. And, and there already seems to be kind of a movement among younger people anyway, recognizing that, you know, alcohol isn't necessarily or consuming alcohol isn't necessarily always a, the health, a healthy life choice. And so some people are choosing to just for periods of time to stop drinking altogether. Uh, but the, the idea of, of moderating is, is interesting, uh, especially for, you know, I think about this, I, I stopped drinking Dr. Uh, when I was 25 years old. So I, I started having a problem pretty young and it would have been interesting to know if, you know, with that, if that would have been useful for me at that time or not, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I should probably try at this point, but um, talk about that a little bit about, about, okay. So someone that is in their earliest stages of having uh, of alcohol use disorder, I guess, or having some kind of problematic drinking, those are the candidates for moderate drinking. Possibly. Yeah, so uh, sometimes people who don't quite meet the criteria for having an alcohol use disorder, alcohol addiction, but they're still having a problem with drinking too much, they can learn to moderate their drinking before it becomes a problem. So that's right. because alcohol, when you know, addiction is really um, it's a physical reaction, isn't it? It's, it's something that happens physically. Your body demands the alcohol, right? And and in some cases, if you don't get it you can go into DTs and it could be life-threatening, right? 
Yeah, so that's absolutely. a serious addiction. Yes. Yeah, so there are some people who reach a stage where their body becomes physically dependent on alcohol. So if they don't get the alcohol, their body will go through bad withdrawal. And you're right, it can be serious. You can have seizures. You can have delirium tremens. It, it could be fatal. And so it's important that if you're going to detoxify from alcohol, if you're going to quit and you have that level of severity, it's important to go through a medical detoxification. So then the question is for people who then have crossed the threshold where they are addicted to alcohol, what's the best strategy for them? And in my practice, I tend to take a pragmatic approach. And the most important criteria for me is to help engage people into treatment. That I, you know, uh, Wayne Gretzky said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Well, I don't help 100% of the patients that don't get in treatment. And so for me, it's really important to help engage people in treatment. And so when I talk to people and review their their story about drinking, I might say, you know, it looks like you're drinking too much. And they might say, well, I don't think it's too much. And I'll say, well, let's see if we can moderate your drinking. Here's the criteria. I, I want to make sure you don't have any days where you have binges. So for men, it's more than five or five drinks or more in a day. For women, four or more drinks in a day. And if we can do that, then maybe you don't have a problem. But mm. if you can't do that, then we need to reexamine your drinking. So, Interesting. So for some people, they're able to come back at the next visit and say, well, I took your advice. And over the past three, four weeks, I did not have any days where I had any binges. And so I was able to moderate my, my drinking. But what I find is that by giving people that challenge, some people will come back and say, you know what? I wasn't able to moderate my drinking. Maybe it is a problem for me. And so it's important to do something like that to help engage people, to meet people where they're at, to get them involved with treatment. Right. So for those who decide that, uh, that for them, their alcohol, hasn't, their alcohol consumption hasn't really reached that point where I guess they're physically addicted or, or, or for whatever reason they think that they, they are able to moderate, how do, you, how do you treat those people? How do you teach them to moderate? Yeah, so for many people, I'll say, let's look at your drinking and keep a record of it. So it's important that people actually see, you know, how much they're drinking they actually are engaged in. And some people will surprise themselves and see that they're drinking a lot more than they they, they typically thought. I'll have them uh, have certain thresholds and say, you know, no binges. And if they are able to meet that criteria, then they're doing fine. If they can't meet that criteria, then they may have to reexamine their relationship with alcohol. But for some people, it's not enough that they can monitor themselves. And so I ask people to have a support person that you, you're doing this with. So, for example, in January, they have a, a month called Dry January where you make a commitment to not drink. And that gives people a chance to see how they feel without alcohol in their system. That seems to be becoming more popular all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and, and many people find that, you know, while they didn't think they had a problem with drinking during dry January, they felt much better. They had less anxiety, less depression, more energy. They generally felt better physically and emotionally. And so they say, I'm not going to drink. And so for many people, Doing the moderation thing helps them to see that even their level of drinking is not healthy and they decide not to drink at all. But again, you're meeting people where they are and you're helping them to um, track their data. Now, for some people, just recording their data, just having a friend is not enough. And now one of the new things that's available is this thing called digital therapeutics. 
uh, digital therapeutic is a program that's uh, on the internet that can help teach people sort of cognitive behavioral skills to help teach people how to moderate their drinking or, or stop drinking and helps teach people coping skills so that they won't use alcohol in an appropriate way. So that's another thing that one could do. Does it work? Is there, does it, have you noticed that it works for people? Yeah. So the thing about digital therapeutics as opposed to apps that you might download is that digital therapeutics go through sort of rigorous process of showing that they're effective. So they have to compare the digital therapeutic versus someone who doesn't get to digital therapeutic to prove that it works. And they have to go through the same process that medications go through to get the FDA approval. Right now, I'm doing a study with uh, several other sites in which we're looking at a digital therapeutic to treat people who have opiate use disorder. So that's called Modia. That's a, a digital therapeutic. And, and again, these, these therapies can be very helpful to help engage people into treatment. And it's something that they can access any time of the day, anywhere that they have internet access. And so if you can't get a hold of your therapist, you can use your Modia program to help teach you behavioral skills to, to cope with craving and, and to. So what is it? Is it like, are you watching a video? Are you in, interacting in some way? Yeah. So what's interesting is that it'll, it'll have text and teach you various skills. Sometimes they'll give a short video vignette. But after they present the information to you, then what's, what's interesting about the program, which what I find really uh, helpful, is that they engage people by asking you, how did you feel about what you just learned? And some people, I've, I've done the program myself, and sometimes I'll act like a very resistant patient. I'll say, <laughs> that wasn't very helpful for me at all. You know, you're boring me. This sounds like hokey stuff. And then the program adjusts itself to say, well, okay, let me try this. Let me try something else. And so I'll find the things that work best for a particular patient. Uh-huh. So it has that kind of artificial intelligence. I engine was wondering in about that. I was talking to someone else who was involved with some artificial intelligence to help intelligence to help people. He has a um, an app on his on uh, that you got on your phone called SoberGrid, and he's developed this um, artificial intelligence that. The idea is that when people are interacting on this app, the artificial intelligence will be able to tell if somebody is getting close to a relapse, and then they would have people intervene on, 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 uh, to help these people at that time because the artificial intelligence is picking up that that this person's in danger. I found that really kind of freaky. I thought that's that's really almost scary. But do you think is that is that possible? Is that well, it's, it's possible. I'd have to look at the data. So I'm, I'm a, a clinician, but I'm also a scientist. And so for me to recommend something, I need to know what the data are to show that it works. But I theoretically, it's possible that if one measures physiologic responses, that when there's certain physiology, the person may be at risk for using alcohol. But I'd have to look at the data okay. to see if that's well, true. Well, that's so interesting. But you're using AI with these digital, the, the, the digital therapeutics. To, to help to figure out where the person is. Exactly. Again, the, the goal is to engage people in treatment and people who stay in treatment generally have good outcomes and the people who drop out of treatment generally don't have a good, very good outcome. So, so that's why I, when I talk about using medications to help folks, it's always in conjunction with some sort of psychosocial uh, support to help engage people in treatment. And then you get a much better outcome. Yep. I, you know, you, you've often said, and I, I totally love this is uh, meet people where they are. I think that's the most important thing that we can do. And there uh, I'm a, I, I, I 
am one who thinks that harm reduction is 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 good and useful. Um, I never really have understood how harm reduction could work with alcohol, but would you consider what what you're doing to be harm reduction? Yeah, it's harm reduction, but with a little bit of a twist. So I'm very much in favor of meeting people where they are. Some of the people in the harm reduction movement, though, leave people there. So if someone is not in a good place, meet them where they are, but get them to a better place. Right, exactly. They're thinking, this is just a temporary deal, but we're going to eventually move you. But the, but a true harm reduction would just be accepting the person wherever they are and, and helping reduce whatever harm is being done. Yeah, and again, for, for some people, that might be the answer. But for many people who come in to see me, once they realize they're in a bad place, they don't want to stay there. And they just don't know how to get out. But I get down where they are, and then I help them to see how they can get better and, and show them a path out of where they are. Okay. So have you had success with people um, who moderate? And what, what are you finding? Do they, do they just continue to moderate, or, or do more of them just say, okay, I don't really need this at all? Yeah, so I, I see both outcomes, and I'll give you some examples. So for some people, when they drink, it stimulates these endogenous opiates, which helps compensate for deficiencies in opiate receptor activity, maybe post-stress. But what happens is when you use the alcohol in that way, you're planting the seeds for the next episode of drinking. So even though it might, might help you feel better temporarily, as the alcohol wears off, your craving for alcohol increases. Actually, I did a study with um, college students who some of them had a strong family history for alcohol drinking, and I had them drink three beers. And after three beers, the people who had a strong family history for alcohol drinking had increased energy. The people without the family history had lower energy. But what was fascinating to me is that after three drinks, their craving for the fourth drink was higher than the craving for the first drink. For people without the family history, the craving went down. And then I did the experiment where I gave them naltrexone, the opiate blocker, before they had the alcohol. And what I found was that the people who had the family history for alcohol drinking, their response was just like people who did not have a family history. After three drinks, they felt tired, they didn't have increased energy, and they didn't want to have the fourth drink. And that's what I find in my research studies when I give people naltrexone. If they do have a slip, they don't get very much joy out of the alcohol, they don't get increased energy, and often they'll stop drinking after one, one drink or two. You know, I've had the experience where when I did studies, people would go into a bar, their buddies would say, here, have a drink on me. And they would, not to uh, embarrass their friend, they would start drinking, but they would leave the drink there at the bar. They would leave half of it there. And that's something that they never did in their life before that. And that's the power of what naltrexone can do. And there is evidence, I know, to support this, absolutely, that 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 this does happen. Um, so I, I want to ask you a little bit, I want to ask you about the Sinclair method because it sounds that kind of sounds familiar to me. I mean, I've talked to about three or four different people who have used the Sinclair method or know a lot about it. And the whole idea there is that you take naltrexone one hour before you drink and then you go out and you drink and you don't have the craving like you just described. You're not wanting another drink. And 
this helps people to kind of moderate their drinking, drink normally. And the people I've talked to that ha- are familiar with the next you know, with the Sinclair method, they describe pretty much what you're de- what you're you're telling me is that um, some of them just do this for the rest of their lives. They'll take naltrexone and they'll and they'll and they'll continue drinking. But a lot of them just say, ah, "I'm not really not interested in alcohol. It's not doing anything for me." And a lot of them just stop drinking. So how is that different than what you're talking about? And tell me what your opinion is of the Sinclair method anyway. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Well, well, I knew David Sinclair and he was an animal researcher and he, he, he wound up moving to Finland with his wife. And, um, so his theory was that alcohol is rewarding because it stimulates endogenous opiates. So we both agreed on that. And he believed that if you block the opiate receptors, you could, would cause extinction of alcohol drinking behavior. And so he believed that it was important for the rats when they hit the bar and they uh, received alcohol that they, when they had naltrexone on board, they would learn the alcohol wasn't reinforcing anymore and they would stop hitting the bar for alcohol. So he patented an approach. So he took a patent out and um, they called it the Sinclair method so that when people are in recovery, um, they would take the alcohol, they would drink, um, they would take naltrexone before going drinking, and then they would have that extinction experience and uh, they wouldn't want to drink anymore. And some people would drink in moderation. Some people would quit their drinking and that was a wonderful outcome. Now, having said that, my approach was a little different. My approach is that um, uh, addictive drugs like alcohol are not like natural rewards. Um, If you are hungry and you eat food, after a while you're not hungry anymore. You don't want to keep pressing the lever to get the food pellet. You You stop eating. But for addictive substances, the more you do it, the more you want to do it. So it's a cycle. It's a vicious addictive cycle. And so the strategy is you need to break that cycle. One way to break that cycle is by using something like naltrexone, which blocks the tendency for alcohol to stimulate the craving for more alcohol. And practically, what I found when I work with patients is that for many of my patients, if I said, particularly early in recovery, I want you to take naltrexone before you go to the bar on Friday night. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, they would be very motivated on Monday. But by Friday, they wanted to go out and drink and experience. They wanted to feel the high, right? They wanted to feel the high, exactly. And so they wouldn't take it. Right. What fun is it to to drink on naltrexone? Exactly. So they just wouldn't take it. But if I had people take it every day and I said, don't think about if you're going to take it or not, just make sure you take it every day, then I had much better results. So that's number one. Number two, that... You know, they say in the room, stay away from people, places, and things. Now, that's one of those wisdoms which I think has good empirical basis for, and we can study it scientifically and find that when you're in a situation where your brain expects alcohol, it actually stimulates biochemical changes that increases craving to want to drink. Well, it turns out that if you give naltrexone, it blocks that. So there's plenty of data to show that you can block those biochemical changes in the brain if you have naltrexone in your system. So rather than wait for the person to uh, promise that they're going to take naltrexone before they go out drinking, I just say take it every day. Or now what I do is there's a version of naltrexone that you can give as an injection called Vivitrol or extended release naltrexone. And so when people come in on a Monday and they're motivated, 
they get the Vivitrol shot. And for the next 28 days, oh, wow. they have naltrexone in their system. Oh, wow. So they don't have to worry about them being motivated on Friday when they want to go out and drink with their buddies. Oh, they wow. already have the naltrexone in their system. Wow. I would think that would be very helpful. That Not just to the people that are having a problem with their drinking, but for society as a whole. You don't have to worry about these people, you know, getting drunk and, you know, hurting people. Yes, it could be very helpful. And for opiate addiction, it's life-saving because you can go out and use opiates and you won't get any effects, you won't overdose. And it's, again, it's something that's horribly underutilized. And and uh, I, fear that we, I feel that we could do a whole lot to help reverse this opioid overdose uh, crisis we have by giving people uh, naltrexone and extended-release naltrexone. Most people are aware of using Narcan, which is the opiate blocker to bring people back to life who've overdosed. So that's a shorter acting version of basically naltrexone. Why not give the longer acting version to keep people protected from overdosing? Isn't that something else? That's amazing. Yeah. It just, that does make sense to me that that would help a lot. Um, And it's, I mean, you got with that opiate, with the opiate problem, it's so, it's just so, it's killing so many people. It seems like we would just want to try anything we could possibly try to, to, to help. Well, we have the technology to help prevent people from overdosing and help people recover. And I use it in my clinical program. And we have wonderful results for people who stop craving opiates, who, you know, besides not overdosing, they actually lose the desire to want to use opiates and they turn their lives around. And it's something that's terribly underutilized and, uh, you know, again, part of why I like to do these podcasts is to help get the word out about effective treatments that are out there to help people in recovery. Yeah, I find it really interesting. I'm so glad that you came on here. Um, I, it's, you know, I, I, I think that that more people like me who've been in the recovery community for a long time are coming to realize that um, we may have been taught back in the old days that there's a standard way that's for everybody but that's really not true that um, the approach to helping people that are with addiction has to be tailored to a specific person. Right. And should involve all sorts of options, I guess. Um, yeah, exactly right. I, in 2000, I wrote a book called recovery options where I outlined all the various approaches to treatment, but uh, despite my efforts, most people just rely on, one of two approaches. So in the alcohol field, it's basically the 12-step model and abstinence is the only strategy. In the um, treating uh, opiate addiction, it's to put people on methadone or buprenorphine, which is an agonist. So it it replaces uh, external opiates that you might take, and, and that's the treatment. But there are other options as well, including breaking that addictive cycle so that people are free of addiction and stop craving the, the drug. And, and in my clinical practice, I have some patients, for example, this week, I saw an executive who's very, who's been seeing me for two years now, and he did not want to quit drinking, uh, but his drinking was affecting relationship with his wife, with his job, he was in trouble. I put him on naltrexone and immediately his craving for alcohol decreased. But when he goes to meetings and business meetings and such, he will go out and have a drink or two and stop. And his craving to want to drink every day is gone. He says he still enjoys a glass of wine, but he doesn't get the buzz that he used to get. 
And he has not escalated his drinking over two years. And he's really happy with his progress. And he's very successful at work and relationship with his wife has improved. He's doing very well. I have another patient who I've been seeing for, oh my goodness, over 20 years. And uh, she uh, took naltrexone and she always has uh, like four ounces of wine every night and has been doing the exact same thing for a couple of decades. And um, she doesn't want to stop anymore, uh, reduce it any more than that. She en- enjoys it. And that's exactly where she stayed. So she's moderated her drinking. A, a, very out, a very common outcome, however, is people who really drink because they want the high. And when you block the high with naltrexone, either they'll want to stop taking naltrexone or they just quit drinking. And for many people, that's the easiest option because you just remove it as one of the options. Just like, no, I don't do that anymore. And that's the end of the debate. You don't have to ponder, am I drinking too much? Should I drink or not drink? It just becomes easier to say no. But they can do it without feeling like they're giving up anything. I've treated people with alcohol problems with naltrexone or without naltrexone. I found that with the naltrexone, uh, people don't white-knuckle it as much. So people just lose the craving. They just don't miss it anymore. They, they choose not to want to use alcohol or or the same thing for opiates. I talked to a patient today who he's a, a couple years clean from opiate use and um, he he's, doesn't miss it. He feels very comfortable. He's turned his life around. He's has a great job. Relationships with people are improved and uh, he, he just feels great about life in general right now. So you can do it and, it, and it's not that you feel that you've missed something. Right. 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 So let me ask you kind of a loaded question. Um, and and I'd be kind of interested in, you know, what you think about this. So, uh, treatment centers are so, are so focused on the 12 step model for everybody. And they seem to be a lot of them and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I'm hearing are resistant to any kind of medically assisted treatment. And why do you think that is? Is there is there a financial motive for these treatment centers where maybe it's it's in their interest that these people not get better and that they continue to relapse and revisit their treatment centers? What's going on? Why aren't these treatment centers more receptive to approaches like yours? Well, I can tell you from my experience. So again, I don't know the psychology of what's going on in the uh, many of the treatment centers, but I can tell you my experience. So in an attempt to bring evidence-based treatments to uh, residential treatment, I um, agreed to consult with the staff at uh, a couple of high-end, one of these luxury rehabs. And, and I knew the medical director, and he's very much an evidence-based guy, and he wanted to bring this to his high-quality luxury rehab program. And, uh, and the staff was really interested in using naltrexone and understanding alcohol from a variety of perspectives. And we were doing a good job with training them. Um, but I knew something was up when, when I talked to some of the administrators and I said, well, how does the data look with, you know, using more naltrexone? And one of the things they said was that they were really proud of the percent of people who, after they left the program, they came back again. 
that he, he presented that as a, a statistic to show how good their program was that they had returned visitors. So it's almost like they're running a hotel. <laughs> right. That's not so good. They're really interested in getting people to come back when they relapse. And I said, that's not a good statistic. No, that's my fear. That's happening. That's not a good statistic. And, and I hate to say it, but for some of the administrators, I think their goal is to keep the beds filled. Now, from my perspective, there's enough problem out there to keep the beds filled regardless, but let's get people better. And and so I'm fearful that for some of the administrators, it's not necessarily in their best interest to get people better where they don't come back. That, for me, would be the goal, uh, not to, to be proud of the fact that you have uh, uh, a high rate of people that uh, like the program so much that they come back again and again and again. Right. Yeah, that's that's always been kind of my my concern and fear too. Um, one of these days, I want to do an episode about um, uh, uh, ripoffs and the reco- <laughs> and recovery uh, because I've, I, if, if you've ever read about the history of um, addiction treatment in the United States. Um, it's really interesting all the all the quack um, medicines and 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 thing and things that have been done to that really were just kind of ripping people off, and I think that there's still maybe some of that going on, and it would be kind of interesting to kind of explore the history of that and what's happening now. But I I don't I don't I'm not going to you know assume that all these treatment centers are are doing that, but I just find it interesting that, um, and fr- I find it frustrating to be honest with you, doctor, that, um. Uh, the 12 step community is so resistant to change and new information. Um, so yes. <laughs> that's my feeling. Well, it's, you know, you, the title of your podcast is beyond belief. And, and, and the, the problem for me as a scientist is that for me, a theory is just a way of a shorthand notion of looking at data of organizing data and should be something that continues to grow as we accumulate more facts that it should always evolve. When people have a belief, it's not permeable to new data. So it's, it's you could have something that you believe now and something that you're going to believe in 75 years, but it doesn't change as we learn more things. But science generally is a, is a process where we, we learn more. We change our beliefs depending on how the data come out. And, you know, unfortunately for people who have a business that's making money, they're not necessarily interested in changing their business model if they're already successful in what they're doing. But I do want to say this, that uh, when I talk to people who are treating patients, the clinicians, I find that in general, there's not a group of more dedicated, caring human beings. So I don't want to imply that the treatment providers are interested in making money, but sometimes the head of the programs might be. And, and that program where I worked as a, as a consultant, that luxury program, well, they wound up uh, letting me go after a year. And then the person who hired me, he wound up, wound up getting fired a year or two later. So uh, I think the board sometimes their motive is a little bit different than many of the people who work directly with the patients. Well, um, I'm so glad that you came on this podcast. Uh, this actually is would I, after talking to you, I think is going to be very well accepted by the people who listen to this podcast because as the, the, the people that listen to this podcast are more interested in evidence-based treatments. They're, they're kind of looking beyond the, the 12 steps. And uh, so I, I think that that's, 
I, I, I like what you're doing. I think it's great. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like to talk about before we um, call it a wrap? Well, one of the things I just want to make sure people understand, and and I, I found this in, in the studies that I did, was that the medicines by themselves, I don't want people to get the idea that naltrexone by itself or any medicine is the cure for addiction, that really the medicines work best in a context in which they're getting some sort of psychosocial help. And uh, I actually came up with a psychosocial program, what we call it the Brenda approach to help people engage in treatment. I'm now working with these digital therapeutics as a way to combine with medicines to help people in, in, in recovery. And so for me, the best strategy is when you combine good psychosocial support, and that can include peer support as well, with the right medicine to help people recover. And when you do that, there's really good news out there. A very high percent of people can get better. And people who haven't had success in the past, if they could avail themselves of these options, the combination of the right medicine with the right psychosocial support, you have a really good chance of getting better. Yeah. That, thank you for clarifying that. And, and yes, and you, and you were clear about that too in, in the beginning that this is, that addiction is a complicated, complicated thing. And, uh, yeah, and, I, and therapy, would, I, I believe in that as well. So, anyway, thank you very much. It's been a very, very interesting conversation. Well, I'm so you. glad thank that you came on. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.